This is realestateinvestingmastery.com. Everybody, welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. This is Joe, and I'm with Alex. Man, Alex, it's been a while. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, it has been a little bit. Uh, doing really well. Good to uh, hear you in from a distant, faraway land. Doesn't it sound like I'm far away? I, I'm actually. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. Uh, you can definitely tell. Yeah. Okay. I am in. I'm in Prague. Most of you guys are probably already know that. Uh, we'll be releasing this podcast episode about two, three weeks after we re-record this. But um, I am in Prague. We got here a few days ago. We're in our new flat. It's awesome. I love it here. I just recorded a video today, Alex, of me walking through Prague. I, I showed people on the video the uh, old historic areas, the kind of new shopping areas, the metro subway system. Public transportation is really good here. And uh, Prague's just a gorgeous city. A lot of people who have been all over Europe will say Prague's their favorite place. I was just talking to a guy yesterday who just came here from Paris, and uh, he said Prague is actually very clean compared to Paris. Paris is one of the dirtiest cities he's ever been to. And uh, I was kind of shocked to hear that. Wow. But yeah, walk you know, around that here. That doesn't like, make sense. There's a lot of... Um, uh, people out working, cleaning the streets. You see these street cleaners coming by, and um, it's just a cool place to live. We've been here before, and this is uh, part of a project that we're doing. We wanted to take a vacation for a few weeks to Europe, um, but with four kids, it's hard to just, you know, it's like two days to get to Europe, and then adjusting for the time zone changes, and then two days and the to get plane back. And everything. Wow. So. Um, on our way here, we had an eight-hour layover in Chicago. Thank you, American Airlines, because yeah. there were some mechanical difficulties. And then they couldn't. It was only going to. It would have been normally been a two-hour delay, um, but London will not accept flights after midnight local time, so we had to wait eight hours. And um, we went to actually. We were in Chicago. We got a taxi and went to the aquarium for a few hours and walked around there and um kids had two of our kids had a meltdown because they were so tired and couldn't couldn't get their naps um but the cool thing was somebody just before we got to the airport was talked was talking to me about the uh, admiral club the i don't know if you fly that much alex but the um american airlines has this thing called the admiral club <laughs> that sounds funny. Yeah, and uh, what it is, it's like a private members-only club. Okay. And uh, it was a hundred bucks for my whole family, and we got to go into this really nice upscale posh uh, waiting area. You know, you, it's 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 really nice, comfortable chairs. There's a bar. There's free food, free drinks, um, and it's really actually rather large at Chicago O'Hare. And there's there's a kids' room. We go in. It's a private room. You go in there and uh, you get a view overlooking the airport, and you got the games and the TVs and the toys and the couches, and it's really, really nice. You don't have the loud, blaring speakers, you know, um, over you, and uh, it's just kind of really nice to get away. Well, I'm so, so you're in part of the Admiral Club, Joe. I am. I have, wow. I have a 30-day a, a real live admiral right on this podcast. <laughs> it was. 
it was well worth every penny of that hundred bucks um, to get in there, and because it was just kind of a little nice oasis, as we had to wait another eight hours for our flight, um, and then we had the red eye. So overnight we flew to London. It was weird. We saw the sunset and we saw the sunrise about five hours later because we were flying that direction. And um, landed in London. We were in line for an hour and a half to go through customs. Um, and our kids—they're just troopers, man. They did so great. They did so good. I mean, they a couple times it was difficult and stressful. I'll be honest, but. Um, we had a good time in London. We saw a lot of cool things. We did the typical touristy things. And then we got to Prague a few days ago, um, hung out with some friends that we still have here from when we were here back in 98. Um, the people are just really friendly. You know, we um, with, uh, with a big family of four kids, it's kind of funny the looks that you get from people as you're walking through the streets. But <laughs> generally, people are really, really nice and friendly. Um, so it's been a blast. I really um, have enjoyed our time here so far. We're going to be here for um, another six or seven weeks before we go back. Um, I have a blog where I'm blogging about my whole thing here. It's called RemotePropertyFlipping.com. RemotePropertyFlipping.com. Check it out. And uh, I blog about what we're doing. And I have a project here where I'm flipping properties um, in a new market. And I've chosen the Orange County, Riverside County areas of California. It's kind of east, southern L.A. areas. Wow. And, Tough uh, market. Well, yeah, but the cool thing is I'm doing three different strategies, and I talk about this a lot on the blog, but doing some traditional wholesaling, wholesaling lease options, and quick-turn leasing where you just you flip these properties with, as, with a lease. You find tenants for them. And... Um, I already got about two full-time VAs doing the marketing. I'm sending out about 500 yellow letters a week, and the first 500 should hit um, in a couple days. Um, we are actually, I got VAs that are going to be answering the phones and returning phone calls and pre-screening sellers, and uh, we're going to be contacting 50 to 100 sellers and landlords every day in Craigslist. So I already got this going. Um, we're starting to make calls right now and starting to send emails and text messages to sellers and landlords and Craigslist. And uh, we're actually using RealFlow. Normally, I use FreedomSoft. Um, no complaints about FreedomSoft. Oh, Joe, you committed a sin. No, 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 no. Listen. You're unfaithful. <laughs> I love FreedomSoft. I've always promoted it and talked about it in the past. Um, and I have no complaints about it. I just wanted to try RealFlow. Um, they have some cool things in there that FreedomSoft doesn't have, so I thought I'd give it a try, check it out. And uh, so I'll be using that for this little project. My goal is to flip one or two properties during the two months that I'm here and kind of show, teach people how to flip properties while you're traveling the world with your family because it can be done. I'm doing it in St. Louis, so why can't I do it from Prague, Czech Republic? It yeah. definitely can be done. I had one of my biggest, uh, well, I mean, I've had bigger months now, but when I was wholesaling, uh, I went to Florida on vacation and had a really good month. It was like a forty or $50,000 month, and I flipped properties without even looking or going to them That's and awesome. without barely even speaking to the sellers. It, everything just lined up really well. Yeah. So um, Alex and I, we have a, a fast cash survival kit where we teach you basically how we do this business, and it's at uh, realestateinvestingmastery.com. 
Alex and I show you how we run our wholesaling businesses, how we use virtual assistants and how the marketing works and what we do. And it's pretty much laid out for you and it's all free. You guys can go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and check it out. Um, it's, it's an incredible value. And if you don't like it, we'll give you your money back, right? As, Very simple. Yeah. <laughs> we got um, some really cool things there, so check it out. And I also wanted to um, – um, well, f first, Alex, I, I, we were just talking a second ago. Um, you have 10 rehabs going on right now. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think it's something like that. I just bought one yesterday and I'm, I'm trying to get, I'm very close to getting another one in a great area, um, under contract. I, I just dropped a mailing about 5,000 pieces in a really hot area in my neck of the woods. And, um, I caught this seller just at the right time. It's nice. actually a listed property. Um, and, uh, it was in pending mode and I guess the buyer came back, uh, from a offer of like 139. I guess I could talk about this because it's only going to be released, uh, <laughs> in the yeah. next couple weeks or months or so. <laughs> but anyway, so it was listed for 139, um, uh, or pending at 139. Um, and the seller came back or the buyer came back and tried to hit him at 112. So, and then this guy got my mailer and, you know, when you're in that position where it's like, oh, I don't even, even if this guy offered me more, I wouldn't want to go with it because I don't like the guy, you know? Right, right. So, of course, I came in there and, you know, helped him, you know, really think about how he doesn't like the other buyer and work with him along those lines and, you know, told him if I could, you know, if, if we get the property for, uh, you know, if we agree on a price, I can close it in seven days or less type of thing. He's really excited about that. Um, but unfortunately, I guess he didn't even know he had listed the thing. Um, but so it was listed, uh, and I have to deal with the, the realtor over there. So, you know, we're playing the game, but I, I think, I think it's going to go through. It's a great, great deal. It's probably worth about two thirty fixed up and I'm buying it for one fifteen. Good for you, man. Yeah. So we'll put probably about 50 into it, 45, 50 into it, sell it. And I would assume about a 40 to 45 thousand profit on it so really good area good hot hot uh, hot area people want it what was the what was there. the list you were mailing to i did an absentee list nice yeah okay no actually you know what i mixed it up uh, this is a different type of mailing that i've been using and maybe releasing in some type of a course format sometime in the future um it was a it was a mixture of some really good juicy um, leads like I, I would I would call it. It's a mixture of absentee, free and clear, and some probates that most people don't even know about because they're not even probate yet. And most people overlook them because mm. they get rid of the recent uh, transactions. And it's funny the recent transactions could be the probates that you don't even know about. But most people say, "Well, this transact this recent transaction happened." One week ago, I'm not going to mail to that. There's no equity in that. And a lot of times people overlook it and don't even think about it. Nice, nice. You know, so we just that. <laughs> we just released the interview um, with Kathy Kennebrook. We did a podcast yes. with her. And uh, she had some really killer strategies on uh, who she sends her direct mail to. And uh, that's one of the things we're going to be testing while I'm here, Alex, um, the, the letters that she uses. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, and and I'm looking forward to testing that. Basically, it's a letter that it's typed, it's not handwritten or anything, and it has a, a form at the bottom, like a tear-off form, that says um, in the letter, hey, we want to buy your house. 
and fill this form out and mail it back to us or fax it back to us or call us or visit our wow, website. old school. Old school <laughs> stuff. And, and according to Kathy, um, she gets tremendous response from that. And she actually gets um, o- only, what did she say, 5 10% of the sellers um, will actually call or go to the website. The majority of them will fill that form out and mail it back or fax it back to her. Leads to your mailbox. <laughs> right, right. But, um, okay, cool. We've we got to get going. we got a great guest here, but I want to read a few reviews from iTunes. We are at 99 ratings, Alex, and uh, we just got one more. I want to get one more over 100, um, and we've got a couple good reviews here I want to read real quick. Uh, this is from Ben Key 101 Life Changer. He says, you guys are great. Up until I started listening to you guys, I thought the only way to buy real estate was retail. How silly was I? I guess you can't do what you don't know. But I know now how to get out of the rat race. My first mailing is going out soon. Awesome. And I'm working on being mentored by a local investor. Awesome. Keep up the podcast. I'm stuck in my cubicle for eight hours a day, but I get to spend that time learning and listening to your podcast. Thank you. Uh, We got one more. Awesome. Yeah, that is. This is from uh, Fat Homes. Uh, Real Investors. Fat Homes? With a P-H or a F-A-T? (laughs) F-A-T. Uh, real investors, real deals in U.S. markets, a must-listen, five stars. He says, Alex and Joe, I'm assuming this is a he. Uh, Alex and Joe, great content every time. I really love when you mention the deals you're currently working on at the beginning of the show. No one else does that. I also love the question, if you were dropped into a city and had to start over, what would you do? This is great information on basics, and I have learned a couple of real estate, uh, real easy marketing and networking techniques throughout through this question. Sorry. Uh, keep up the awesome shows, great content, and great guests. Appreciate the reviews, guys. Please leave us a review on iTunes. If you go to iTunes, uh, just do a search for real estate investing. You'll see real estate investing mastery at the top. Click on that. Subscribe to it. You don't have to have a Mac or an iPad or an iPhone to listen to our podcasts in iTunes, but we appreciate you leaving reviews there. It helps us keep us at the top of the list and I'd love to get over a hundred. So if you haven't listened, if you haven't left a review for us, please do that. Just one more. That's all we need. Yeah. So come on, get on it. But uh, we have a great guest on today. Um, his name is Drew Downs, and I'm excited to have him on the show with us. This guy did 40 deals last year. Um, he's on top of things. He does a lot of really cool stuff. Some rehab, some wholesaling. Um, and he's an expert on private money. And uh, so we, we wanted to get him on the podcast here. We're going to be doing a webinar with him soon. And um, I'm excited about the stuff that uh, Drew is going to share with us. He's a, he's a guy in the trenches doing deals. And um, Drew, how are you? you there? Yes, I am. Um, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Drew, what market are you in? I'm in Tampa, Florida. Awesome. Love Florida. Guru yep. land. <laughs> yep. They all you live would, uh, there. You would think that, uh, yeah, Tampa, Tampa's been known for a lot of us to a lot of real estate investors, but uh, you would think that there's no opportunity because there's a lot of competition, but it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, there's there's more opportunity here than any one of us or all of us combined can really handle. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's a great mindset. Yeah. I hope you, everybody who's listening 
maybe you need to rewind and listen to that again, what Drew just said, because you would think that Florida, all the investors that are there, you think that everybody, all of these sellers and absentee owners are probably just getting inundated with mail or with marketing from investors, even with Phoenix, tons of investors in Phoenix. But I know guys there who are flipping 10 to 20 properties a, a yep. month. Yep. And uh, it, it definitely can be done. Don't let fear hold you back or fear of competition, things like that. But um, Drew, yeah. talk about – I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to that. I mean every now and then I hear somebody say that to me. Um, you know, Drew, my city's different or California's different or my state's different. Or Drew, we have a lot of competition here and – yeah. And none of that, none of that really matters. There's so many different ways to do real estate, and um, and and no one person in any city is is doing all of it. So there's there's always opportunity. Uh, I'm pretty confident you could put me in any city, any metropolitan city in in America, and I would I would do just fine in real estate. Yeah, well, I really believe that, and and I can say that because um, I've done it and I'm doing it now. Mm-hmm. But um, I know so many guys like you, Drew and Alex, friends of ours that are doing these deals all over the country um, and making great money. Great, great money. Hey, Drew, talk about um, how you got started in real estate. What, what were you doing uh, pre-real estate days, first of all? Um, well, I, bought my, I actually bought my first house when I was 19 years old. Uh, I'm currently 31 years old, and um, I bought more properties by the time I was 23, 24, and 25 years old. I was about I was a part of about fifty real estate transactions by the time I was twenty five. Wow! But um, that was during the heydays. It was easy. I mean, everybody was making money in real estate, and everybody thought they had it figured out. Uh, and then the market obviously took a major took a major shift. It uh, it it didn't slow down. It stopped. Yeah. It literally just one day stopped. And uh, I went through some really rough times, uh, personally, financially. Um, I, I call those times the day I became a true real estate investor because mm. those were the days that I had to actually start making the the tough decisions, yeah. um, and uh, it 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 got it got very difficult. But I'm looking back on all of it. I'm very glad that all of it happened because I now know what not to do. Yeah. Um, I don't use my personal name ever. Uh, I don't use my personal credit. Uh, I don't. I, I just. I don't put anything in my personal name. That's really important. I don't use any of my own money, which is what I used to do. Yeah. Um, that 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 was key. I think using using my own money. Um, no matter what happened, I always ended up after I uh, bought and sold some houses. I seem to always end up with the same amount of money I started with, maybe just a little bit more. And uh, sometimes you need more. You know, you need a lot more money. That's than interesting. Than uh, yeah, that's you, interesting. You know, I, 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 I guess you could talk about that a little more because I would think, you know, once you have – and this is what I've been thinking. You know, I've, I've got some money where it's sitting in a bank right now and just kind of like, you know, what you talk about with, you know, lending and stuff like that. It's doing absolutely nothing. But if I was to take that money and do a deal that made me 30000 that that's a lot more than it would do just sitting in the bank, correct? Yeah, but uh... – you know that that's provided that the deal does make thirty thousand uh, dollars. That may you know that obviously may not happen on every single deal. Um, you might break even on the deal or just not make as much on the deal. Uh, my point is is let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars of your own money and you're wanting to invest it and in, in buy and resell houses. 
yeah, you're going to you're going to make some money with it, but you can't really make a living off of that. Um because your money's tied up for a certain period of time and and that's what I noticed is I is is back when I was 25, I had some cash that I was working with, but um it, I I really couldn't make significant progress uh with the little budget that I had. I realized one day that, you know, I need a, I need a million dollars. Um because with a million dollars yeah, I mean, $100,000 is something, you know, you can, with $100,000 part-time in real estate, yeah, you can accumulate more savings, um, but you can't really make a living off of it, uh, or it definitely can be very difficult to make a living off of it. Uh, you just need you need more money, and that's where I started, uh, you know, obviously using other people's money. So now, uh, to, to answer your, uh, your, your, your question, Joe, um, you know, we're doing real estate now. I do a lot of wholesaling. I do rehabbing. I do, um, I do private... Uh, funding transactions with with uh, private funds, uh, people self directed IRA money. Um, that's that's pretty much what we do. We did about forty transactions last year. Uh, uh, not a lot of rehabs, a few rehabs. We're starting to definitely kick it up in the rehab department. Uh, yeah. A lot of selling and some some funding deals, where we funded some deals for some of my friends and, and competitors. Um, so yeah, we're you know to do forty deals in one year. Um, I don't think I really want to do more than that. Mm-hmm. I think I just I think I just want to get better at what we're doing. Good. So you I I you when you were talking about getting hit hard by the market, man, I I've been there done that. And uh it, I think there what there probably is not an investor out there that wasn't affected some way or another by the housing crash. And the ones that are still in there, still in the game, uh you better watch out. Guys like uh, Drew and Alex and myself, uh, we've taken our lumps, as it were, and uh, we're going to come out of this market a uh, hundred times better yep. um, than. And, and the people that gave up and quit and got out, I feel sorry for them. You know, yeah. Um, this market now that we're in um, is the best time probably ever, and I've been saying that for a long time, <laughs> but it's probably the best time ever to uh, to get back in if you're out of the market if you're figuring out, well, should I start investing in real estate again or should I start investing in my education again? I mean, uh, guys, it's not too late, but you better hurry up because this is the best time in the market right now that we probably have ever seen in our lifetime. Um, so cool. So, Drew, you, uh, you've been investing for a long time. Um, you got hit pretty hard, I'm going to guess, in between 2006, 2008. Is that right? Yep. Yep, you got it. So what have you been doing post-market crash? Can you be a little more specific about the types of deals you're pursuing and, and what you're doing, how you're doing, who you're wholesaling, things like that? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I started uh, – once the market pretty much crashed, I started working on short sales, dealing with uh, homeowners directly. Okay. And um, that didn't work out so well because six months later – I was working my butt off, and I have not. I did not earn a penny, not not a dime, not one check, uh, because you know I was still trying to figure it out, and not to mention, I think the banks were still trying to figure out as well what to do with these properties. Um, but I'm once again, I'm glad I tackled that because now now I'm, I consider myself to be more of an expert with short sales. Um, I hold, I do. I, I actually stumbled upon wholesaling. Um, I never understood. I always saw the bandit signs on the side of the road, and I never really understood exactly how people were doing it. Um, one day, a guy walked into my office. He's like, "Hey, do you want to, you know, try to see if you could sell this house?" 
and I had been tinkering around with a cash buyers list that I was trying to build. I mean, literally like maybe five or ten people. And I and I sent an email out. I sold it in an hour. What year um, was this? This was after the crash. Uh, this was two thousand and nine. Oh wow! Okay, so. You, uh, before you'd never heard of wholesaling, or no, I, I I heard of it. I just never accomplished it myself. I never did it myself. I, I I understood pretty much how it worked. I just didn't know exactly how to do it. Okay. So that was probably I'd say September or, or October of two thousand and nine. Um, I sold that house in an hour, and I remember going to lunch, and I came back and and having the contract on my desk um, that I you know in my em- email inbox, and I couldn't believe it. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do more of that. Uh, not, not only did I want to do more than that, I needed to do more than that. Yeah. Uh, more, more of those deals. Um, so sure enough, I started changing my business model and focused more on wholesaling type of stuff. And, you know, it was a lot of trial and error. It was talking to other men, you know, mentors to teach me some things that I didn't know, uh, investing in education, you know, reading some books and going through, uh, some courses and things of that nature. Uh, maybe even a few boot camps. And uh, December 2009, I sold 11 houses. Um, and that's when I knew that's when I knew I was on to something, for sure. Now, the market was still falling in December of 2009. Uh, in Florida, it was right? terrible. It was terrible, yes, yes. And so you're still wholesaling houses. And these yep. were, you're wholesaling them to cash buyer investors, right? Yes. Excellent. So, I mean, you can wholesale houses in any market no matter what direction it's going in. Is that right? Pretty much. In fact, I find it easier to wholesale in this market than uh, in a good market. Um, But then again, I really wasn't wholesaling in a good market, so I don't know. But I I like this market because there's a ton of cash out there. Um, A lot of of people want to believe, they want to believe that there's not a lot of cash out there. But they're not really that. That's just going based upon hearsay, what they've heard or what they've experienced with their individual transactions. You know, for an example, uh, I've spoken with real estate agents, and and you know they they don't seem to see a lot of cash transactions. Well, it's because they're not geographically focused in the right areas, right. or they're not their business isn't structured uh, or tailored towards cash buyers. There, there's actually a lot of cash. If you do a market analysis across the country or in, in individual cities, I guarantee you there's a lot of cash transactions in every single city. You just have to be in the right areas and go after the right things. So um, here in Tampa, um, it, we have over 50% of all transactions in my county are cash. Now, that's high, and anyone listening to this could say, well, Drew, you know, you're just lucky because you live in a city that has a lot of cash. It doesn't matter um, right. if if I went to any city that only had fifteen or twenty percent of all transactions were cash. That's fine. I would just be focused in those areas. Exactly. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, even Maricopa County in Phoenix. I was talking to uh, Sean Terry the other day. Sixty percent mm-hmm. of their transactions were cash. Wow. And uh, they're 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 buying properties above list price. Yep. And wholesaling them above <laughs> above price. that price still even. absolutely and absolutely. somebody a, a skeptic is going to ask well why on earth would an investor buy a house from you if they can buy it on the MLS for you know twenty thousand dollars cheaper or whatever a couple well, reasons there's no yeah. good reason I it but they are I a couple a couple good reasons um it, it's pretty simple um. Huh? 
you know, that, that's a great question. And, and how do I get my hands on REOs and, and pay above list price? Um, one, one thing I think that everybody needs to understand is list price has nothing to do with what the property is worth or what the market is willing to pay for it. Right. Uh, I just offered above list price on a property two days ago. I'm probably going to find out today if I got it or not um, just because I know what I can sell it for. Now, the reason why I'm probably going to get it over somebody else is the fact, A, I beat them to the punch. I look at a lot of properties. Um, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm in a position right now where I still like to look at the properties. It gets me out of the office. So I look at a lot of properties and I beat a lot of my competition. I just beat them to the punch because there's no way any one investor in town could look at every single REO or every investment property in Tampa. So I just try to look at a lot of properties. Um, as one reason. Two is I make my offer aggressive. Yeah. This particular property, I knew I wanted it, so I put a zero-day inspection period. I put an aggressive escrow deposit, and I also put an aggressive closing date. Uh, now, I have a business partner that didn't feel too comfortable with this particular offer because it was so aggressive, but I explained to him um, one of the things that we put in the offer is that we would close the property in 10 days. Well, I've been dealing with REOs for several years, and I don't think I've ever had a bank close yeah. a property any earlier than 30 days, uh, 20 or 30 days. So I'm likely to get it because my offer looks aggressive uh, and I look most qualified to buy the property. Um, where somebody else would write an offer on the property, uh, probably not above list price. In fact, I, 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 I'm sorry, I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but I, I looked good. at some data. I looked at some data one time um, recently by zip code and I looked at what property sold for in comparison to list price and I would say probably in my county um, 90% or more do not sell over list price. Um, so mo that, what that means to me is a lot of people aren't willing to offer list price. They mentally see a list price and they think that they have to try to get it for less than that. Right. Uh, right. So I actually, because I know what the property's worth and I know what it'll rent for, I'm willing to pay over list price because I want to get it. Um, and also, uh, they're probably going to have a five to 10 day inspection period. They're only going to put a thousand dollar escrow deposit in the contract and they're going to put a closing date of 30 days. Where mine, I'm putting zero day inspection period. I'm giving the listing agent both sides of the real estate commission. Wow. I'm stating that I want zero days for inspection and I want to close it within uh, 10 days, which the all very not. powerful things right there. Yeah, you got it. You got it. And, and your goal is to wholesale this to another investor? Yeah, um, I'll either wholesale it to somebody as is. I won't even change the locks on it. Um, or I'll use some private money that I've raised to actually close the property clean it up a little bit. This one particular property that I'm discussing with you, uh, all it needs is paint and carpet. Uh, and paint, paint, by the way, does a world of difference on houses. And it's like, it's like the biggest bang for your buck. Um, the first thousand to fifteen hundred dollars that you could spend on a property usually is trashing it out, cleaning it up and paint. And uh, that's, that, that's one of the things that I like to do. Two reasons. One, uh, it's easier to market the property. And two, I'm more likely to uh, find a, you know, just, um, it, it adds value, I guess yeah. is what I'm saying. When you, you say you've been wholesaling, is that a lot of what you're doing more of a whole tail rather than using the, the conventional cash buyer? If you want to put it that way, you're, you're just doing a little bit of fix up and letting the market give, bring you the buyer on the MLS. Um, I, I do both. Um, I will either try to resell the property before I even own it. Just when I have it under contract, 
Um, and of course, that depends on the buyers that I can get interested in the property. Uh, reason being is not every not everybody understands the fact that you're marketing a property before you own it, uh, especially real estate agents. If you get real estate agents involved, they get real leery about, you know, how are you trying to sell this property when you don't own it yet? Um, so sometimes that's a challenge, but I've, I've actually been able to overcome that pretty well with, with agents. Um, but in a lot of cases, I do indeed like to, you know, it's very liberating to be able to close on a property or know that I can close on a property because, oh, it's uh, huge. Yeah, it's you know when you can clean it up two three thousand dollars in a property, it just really makes a world of difference. Not to mention, the, the biggest thing is when you have a property under contract, you cannot rely on the MLS really to sell it um, as much because it's already in the MLS. If it's already on MLS, if yeah, that's or, where you're kicking it off, yeah, the MLS because you don't own it yet. So that's a challenge. Where if you buy it with somebody else's funds or private funds. You can fix it up, make it look better, and then you can just put it on the MLS and let the realtors and the markets do its thing. Do now, your are price. You, are you a realtor, Drew? Uh, I am licensed, but I I don't practice with my life. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I haven't I haven't uh, collected a real estate commission, and I don't even remember when. And I uh, I haven't logged into my MLS, and I don't even know my. <laughs> I don't I don't even know the website to go to the MLS. Honestly. I, <laughs> so well, here. Yeah. Here's mm-hmm. the point, Drew. You're you're so aggressive in these offers because you have what? Money. Yep. And how That's do you the key. And and whose money? Uh private money, not my money, other people's money. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the key to it all because it, just psychologically, what a difference yeah. that makes, right? Yeah, it Last year, I got to say, last year was uh, we only did about forty transactions. But the second part of the year is when I really started focused on trying to find money. So the first part of the year, I kept running into this problem. I'll tell you what happened. I got a bunch of properties under contract, and I didn't have the money to close all of them. And I also couldn't sell all of them. Uh, some of them, the best egg, the best exit strategy was to buy them, fix them up, either a little or a lot, and then resell them. But but I couldn't do that because I was I was very limited in the funds that we had. So the second part of last year, I definitely uh, mentally focused more on raising private money. Now that we have access to a decent amount of cash, this year, not only am I able to confidently put more offers out because I confidently know I can close on more properties, um, I also learned that sometimes it's better to get rid of the properties that I do own uh, faster for less money because I can free up my capital and turn it over m- more times. Okay, It's all about the turn of capital. It is. Right. So last year, my way of thinking was uh, I had a property where we would own it with somebody else's funds and I would not accept a lesser offer because I would try to make you know two, three, four thousand dollars more on the property. Trying to squeeze it, yeah. Trying to squeeze it, but indirectly, what that was doing is that was that was um, putting me in a position where I had opportunity cost because now that money's tied up and I cannot use that money to buy something else. So I'm in a position now where I will dump a property and break even on it if I have to, just wow. to free it up. 
just to free it up and move on to the next one. If, if, wow. if, if, if I'm at a position where I feel like, um, if I'm in a position where I feel like, Hey, this one didn't work. Well, you know what? Get rid right. of it. Try it again. Let me, let me put the money into another hopper and see what happens to this one. You know? So it's really a, it's really a numbers game. Um, and, and you, you know, try to turn that money over as, as many times as possible. That's true. It's not the cost of capital that matters. It's the speed of capital, right? Yeah. It's how quickly you can get access to it. Um, well, you – Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say with the um, – uh, even if you have to sell a property at a loss, yep. um, if you, if that means you can get out of it that much faster so you can get on to the next deal. You're not going to win every deal. No. I, hey, what – I, I, I can definitely tell you that I have not won on every single property that we've done, um, and it's frustrating because there's properties that I spent a lot of time on um, yeah. in the past or, or some time on, and we walk away and we look how much money we made or how much money we didn't make, and it's, it's quite frustrating. Uh, but on the other side, you, you get one of these little 50,000 properties you make $10,000 off of, and you did very little work, and you feel like a champion. Mm-hmm. That's good. What were we going to say, Alex? Oh, I was I was going to ask him um, where he's getting most of um, the uh, wholesale deals from. Are you doing your own marketing? Or are you doing? Um, or are you just trying to pick stuff off the MLS? It's amazing. I I, I do pick a lot of them right off the MLS. Um, there there's there, and there's a reason behind that. If uh, if you wake up tomorrow and you decide you want to go find some deals, usually like kind of what you guys were discussing, you have to do a mailing campaign. You have to kind of ramp up, and you have to have a strategy uh, to 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 get these. Um, where the MLS, I wake up and there's, it's not very difficult to find deals. It's a, there's an abundance of them. Yeah. I just have to I just have to screen them out. So um, I actually do find a lot of deals on the MLS, um, but because we have closed on these and we resold a lot of them, we build a lot of relationships with people locally. So I get a lot of deals just from people that know us, and that that is that's probably uh, where we make a lot of our money at is uh, from the deals that people bring to us. Not really the ones off the MLS, but you know the ones that you know people bring us deals. But we make we make money off the ones off the MLS for sure too. I mean, there's 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 deals that are just uh, sitting there. I, I'll give you one quick example. This I think this will really help everyone out. And, and you'll, you'll notice that I, I always talk a lot about market analysis because I don't really care what anyone says or what anyone feels. What does the data factually tell you? Yeah. And in my particular county, um, I know it's a fact that buyer's agents hate dealing with short sales. Investors, landlords that have money that are, you know, whether they're international or out-of-state buyers, they are avoiding these short sale properties, so they don't even get populated in any form, any type of search criteria, because the realtors are avoiding them, and so are the investors. The investors are telling their realtors to avoid them. So, twenty-eight uh, percent of all inventory on the MLS in Hillsborough County, my county, uh, are short sales. Wow. Six percent are bank-owned REOs. So it is very common for me to show up to an REO, and there's already somebody there. 
And as I'm leaving, somebody else is pulling up to look at it. So it's very competitive because you have a very small amount of inventory that everybody's going after. Uh, and I and I do. I still go after it. I don't avoid the REOs because you know I feel I can still get them. Um, but I go after a lot of short sales also because they're just they're literally literally getting passed over. Not once have I showed up at a short sale property that is on the MLS. And had somebody else already there looking at it or somebody showing up behind me as I'm leaving to look at it. Not one time. So that just goes to show that there's little to no competition on these things. And they're just waiting for offers. The listing agents are dying for offers. Really? Um, so I just give them an offer and I wait it out. I just give them an offer and I wait. And so, Drew, do you, do you search – do you have search criteria for these short sale properties that you actually go out and look for them on uh, MLS? My assistant does. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, but Good. yeah, it, it it's it's gotten quite nice because before I used to do that. Um, my assistant is licensed, and she also um, obviously has access to the MLS, so she knows the criteria. I like three bedroom, two bath block houses around twelve hundred square feet or more, and I like to stay in particular geographical locations based upon uh, a lot of activity. I also try to stay within a 30 minute, 25, 20 to 30 minute drive time away from my office. Mm-hmm. I don't really like to do any deals further away than that. Because, um, you know, if I have to manage it or go look at it or check up on something, it's just too far away uh, if it's more than 20 or 30 minutes. So that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of my criteria. What's nice is now that she has my criteria, um, everybody in my office knows that I, I try to look at uh, five to 10, about five to 10 properties a week. Uh, I'll look at five during the week and I'll look at five on the weekend, like on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning. I'll go look yeah. at you know five houses and that's pretty much it, 10 houses a week, 40 a month. There's, there's nothing better than getting your feet on the street right, and looking at homes, actually looking at homes, driving neighborhoods, getting familiar with your farm area, your 20, 30-minute radius. Um, that way when the deal comes across your desk, you know pretty much within seconds, don't you, Drew? Where you need to be at on those yep. deals? Absolutely. When somebody comes to me, um, and, and that's, uh, that's something that I call becoming a master of your craft. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's the hours and hours and hours of looking at properties and driving these streets and learning the neighborhoods and learning the style of homes. So when you get to a point where you're doing things virtually, uh, you know, I've definitely bought and sold houses virtually. Uh, but I, you know, as I mentioned, I still like to look at houses. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, when somebody comes to me and they bring me a deal, um, the first question I ask them is, what zip code is it in? And as soon as they tell me the zip code, I already have an idea of, you know, then I ask them how many bedrooms, baths, you know, I ask them a few more questions and then I ask them the price and, and pretty much off the top of my head, I got an idea of whether I'm interested or not. Good. Can you talk a little bit how um, you calculate your offers, Drew? When you're looking at a house, do you do the Mayo formula? Do you just look at what you know you can sell it for? What do you do? There's there, there's a couple things that I do. That's a very great que- that that is a great question because that is something that I find a lot of people get caught up on uh, is they don't know how to determine the offer. Um, some people use a technique where they will do a percentage of list price. I don't really care for that technique because yeah. once again, list price doesn't really matter to me. Uh, list price doesn't mean anything. It's just some number that the agent picked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to do a couple things. One of the things that my uh, s- assistant does for me, when I give her an address and I tell her, please pull comps. She knows to go uh, in a one-mile radius the last 90 days 
I like to see cash transactions and finance transactions. She puts it on a spreadsheet for me, emails it over to me. So wherever I'm at, I, I look at the comps when she sends them over to me, and I break them up. I break up, I, I lump the cash transactions together, and I lump the finance transactions together. I, I, I get rid of any outliers, outliers, yeah. outliers meaning anything that's like really goofy. Um, for an example, most houses in the Tampa Bay area are selling between 40 and $70 a square foot or 30 and $70 a square foot. If I see a transaction that's like $119 a square foot that sold cash, I'm going to, I'm going to eliminate that from the cash uh, comparables right. because what that is is that was a retail buyer that just happened to have cash. Right. Um, so I get rid of the outliers in, uh, in terms of that. And then I, I calculate the average price per square foot. So I, I look at average price per square foot for all cash transactions in a one-mile radius in the last 90 days. And I look at the price per square foot of properties that have sold uh, for finance transactions in the last 90 days. Because I want to compare apples to apples. And you're comparing properties that – just to clarify the language, you're looking for properties that – Investors have bought versus retail buyers who are living in the house bought, correct? Yes, yes. And, and once again, it's really going to depend on the neighborhood because some neighborhoods, another analysis that I'll do is uh, there's a zip code here in Tampa, 33610, where 90% of all the transactions are cash. Well, in that particular zip code, I don't even look at the finance transactions. I know my exit strategy is purely to sell to a cash buyer. And uh, I calculate my offer price on that a little bit differently. But if we're talking about a retail neighborhood where, let's say, 50% or 75% of all the transactions are financed, mm -hmm. um, but there are some cash transactions there also, I'm going, to, I'm going to analyze it the way I was just explaining it to you. I'm going to break it up into cash and finance and then... Um, when I get an average price per square foot, which is usually between forty and fifty-five dollars a square foot on the cash side right now, depending on the neighborhood, and on the finance side of things, it's anywhere between seventy-five and ninety-five dollars a square foot. Once again, depending on the neighborhood, I can uh, I can take those numbers and multiply it by the square footage of the subject property, the property that I'm interested in, and uh, that usually gives me a pretty good line, guideline. So that's that's one method that I use to kind of help me determine some offers. Uh, it does get a little bit more in-depth than that, though. So is, are, is there a particular area you like to focus on, one over the other, uh, an area where most of the buyers, most of the transaction are cash buyers versus another area that's mostly retail buyers? Yeah, I, uh, I try to go after the hottest commodity. Um, I'll give you an example. The last thing you want to do is get a property under contract and then realize that there's only five cash transactions in the last 90 days and, and your sole strategy was to sell it to a cash buyer. Well, guess what? You messed up because there's, there aren't any cash buyers in that particular area. So um, I do like to focus on areas that have a high concentration of transactions, uh, just activity. I don't really care if they're finance or they're cash. I just like to see a lot of activity. Um, and then usually the types of transactions uh, will dictate my exit strategy. Once again, if there's a lot of finance transactions in that particular um, zip code or area, I my goal will probably be to buy it, rehab it, and sell it to a retail buyer. If they're like 33610, where 90% of the transactions are cash, uh, that's a landlord neighborhood. My goal is to get it under contract and then sell it to a landlord. Now, obviously, when I do now when I do that, I'm looking at things differently. 
Um, yeah. I'm looking at I'm looking at what the property rents for, um, how much work does it need, and what kind of return would a landlord get on his money? For an example, twelve percent, thirteen percent, fourteen percent. What kind of ROI, return on investment, right. are they going to receive on their money? And I, I it's a uh, it's a pretty simple calculation, but I back I position myself that when I sell a property. We're in double-digit returns, so then that way nobody can argue with me that it's not a good deal. So when I sell a property, I say, hey, this is what it'll rent for, which means at the end of the day, you'll make 15% return on your money. So if somebody tries beating me up on my price, I can say, well, you know, last I checked, making 15% is pretty good. So that's how how I know it's a good Can you run through how you calculate that 15%? Yeah. um, First of all, it's a a little in-depth. let me give me one second. I'm going to grab my actual uh, ROI sheet. There's a little. I put Basically, a little spread. A re- return on investment is your um, your profit divided by the cash you've invested. Pretty much, right? Correct. Correct. And um, the easiest way to do it. I mean, you want to. What I do is I, I look at it from the landlord's perspective. Let's say I'm selling him a property for fifty thousand dollars. And let's say the property needs about $2,000 worth of work. And when he buys it, let's say he's going to accumulate, I don't know, $500 in uh, closing cost. That means the landlord that buys the property from me is going to be into this property for $52,500. Right. So if the property rents for, let's say, $1,200 a month, on an annual basis, if you multiply twelve hundred a month times twelve, that's fourteen thousand four hundred dollars a year. Right. right. I take out the annual insurance and the annual taxes on the property. So, you, and that that just depends on your area. So, in in my area, annual annual insurance on a fifty thousand dollar property would be around let's call it six hundred dollars. Annual taxes would be somewhere like a thousand dollars. Um, and then I back out any property management fees, vacancies, any potential maintenance, and I use I use a number of about twenty five percent. Wow! So I use okay, I good. use very. I'm sorry. That's conservative, but that's good. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I I try to use very conservative numbers. So what I'm doing is once again, you have annual rents of fourteen thousand four hundred. Uh, you minus the insurance of six hundred a year. You minus the taxes of a thousand a year. Uh, if I were to take out twenty five percent of that fourteen thousand four hundred a year in rents, that's thirty six hundred dollars. So that 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 would actually bring me to to a total annual expense of around fifty two hundred dollars and a net cash return of ninety two hundred dollars a year. If you take that ninety two hundred uh, net cash return and you divide it into the landlord's acquisition price of 52500 that's a 17% return on their money. That's excellent. So when I can mathematically show that to a landlord, um, they can't really argue with me. The only thing they can argue is that maybe the fact the property can't rent for 1200 a month and it's only 1100 a month. But then I go back and I say, okay, well, I recalculate those numbers at 1100 a month. And I say, okay, well, instead of 17%, you'll be at 15.8%, which is still pretty darn good. So uh, I, I do not have a problem uh, or any challenge selling properties to cash buyers in this manner because I'm selling the sizzle, not the steak. Uh, uh, landlords don't really care about the house. I mean, they do care about the house, but they, they don't care about comparables as much as they do um, the return they're getting on their investment. And that's why they're buying them. 
They're yeah. buying them to – why do landlords buy it? To make money on their money. So sell it to them in that manner. They don't care what the one down the street sold for. They care about how much money they're going to make on their money. Yep. Well, that's excellent. Thanks Thanks for walking through that. And, and I know some people got confused listening, but just just rewind and pause every couple seconds, write down those numbers, because I was typing them as Drew was going through them. And, and you're absolutely right. 17% return on your money is very good, and that's what investors are looking for. Um, especially in the rental neighborhoods. Now, in the in the areas where you're going to rehab it and sell it, how do you calculate your offer there, Drew? Um, and that's that's a great question. Um, and and one real quick thing I want to add to what I just mentioned. If I with that ROI example that I just gave you, selling it to a landlord, if I know that I can sell the property with a fifteen to seventeen percent return, uh, selling it to somebody at fifty thousand um, dollars. I know that I'm going to try to buy it for the low 40s and just try to make five or seven thousand dollars on a wholesale deal, and that's something, you know, I don't try to make a lot of money on my wholesale deals. I try to make anywhere, you know, about five or seven thousand dollars. Okay. Uh, on a rehab, uh, I calculate my offer a little bit differently. Um, I, I use more of the approach that I first started explaining to you, where I separate the transactions, uh, the comparables via cash and via finance. Because rental rates don't really apply when your family, when a family, you know, husband, wife, kids, and dog, or whatever, when they buy this property from me, they don't care what the house is rent for in the neighborhood. What they care for is other things. You know, is it is the backyard big enough? Is their monthly mortgage payment uh, within their means? Uh, you know, is the kitchen nice? Is the bathrooms nice? Things like that. So I use more of the approach of comparables. Uh, yep. What is selling price per square foot? So <clears throat> let's say on average in a particular retail area, pri- properties are selling for $55 a square foot. And uh, I know I have to put a significant amount of work into this property. I might try to buy it for 45 or $50 a square foot. Um, one of the things that I do is, is I, I create a budget on how much money I think I'm going to put into the property. And then I divide that into the square footage of the property. So let's say we have a 2,000 square foot house and we have a um, $20,000 rehab budget based upon my calculation. Um, that means that I'm – adding $10 per square foot of rehab to the house. So if I'm buying the house for $40 a square foot, I'm putting $10 per square foot with a rehab into it. I'm into it at $50 a square foot. Uh, You're going to have some additional cost on top of that if you have to pay a realtor, cost on your money, so on and so forth. But if I'm if if properties are selling for $85 or $95 or $90 per square foot to retail buyers, and I'm into my property for I don't know as much as much as sixty dollars a square foot. Okay. I still have a potential profit margin of you know twenty to thirty dollars per square foot, which is huge. Mm, yeah, that's going to be forty to sixty thousand dollar back end profit. Right, right. On a two thousand well, square foot house. Right, which usually I'll be honest, it it actually dwindles down. I mean, I don't think I I ever can calculate a potential profit on a property accurately. Uh, I don't think anyone can. Um, but I know I'm safe. Yeah. If I see a potential profit of, you know, forty or fifty thousand dollars on the property, it is worth me rolling up my sleeves and taking a risk on this property because even if I screw it up or even if something really terrible happens, I, I have a I have a lot of um, margin for error. Mm, that's good. 
And you kind of use, you kind of go through the same process if you're going to be wholesaling a house to another rehabber in the same neighborhood, right? But you maybe subtract uh, ten grand for your wholesaling fee. It's something of that nature. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you're absolutely right. That's that's exactly what I do. I try to look at it. I try to look at the deal in the position of any everyone anyone's shoes that could potentially be involved in it. If I'm wholesaling it to a rehabber, I try to look at it from his perspective, and that's exactly what I do. I also do the same thing. So when I wholesale a property to a rehabber, I show them the numbers. Yeah, and we can and we compare notes. Um, I'll ask them, how much money do you think this house needs in repairs? And they're like, oh, 25000 I said, well, I came up with 23000 so we're not too far off on that. And then I show them a calculation of what I just explained to you, and, and I show them that they could potentially make $18,000 or $20,000 on the property, and, and usually they'll, uh, they'll buy it or they won't argue with me. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good method as well. If oh. you have a good deal, the, the, the buyers are easy to find, aren't they? No, oh, yeah, absolutely. You you know when you have a good deal because if you so much as send an email out or post it on Craigslist or put a sign out there, um, I, I actually had one property. I I put a sign out there and I got so many phone calls that I actually went out to the I went back out to the property and took the sign down because <laughs> it was getting ridiculous. Like I just couldn't handle all the like I was getting a lot of calls. Um, so yeah, if you get a good deal in a good area, there's, there's, you know, you could put a bandit sign out there and it'll sell or make a few phone calls to a couple of real estate agents or whatever. Yeah. It'll, it'll sell. A lot of people get tied up and worried about building their buyer's list. Well, that's important. It's important to have a good buyer's list, but at the same time, maybe what's more important to focus on finding the deals, right? Because not just, finding, I, I would agree with you. I think not just, not just finding the deals, but I think finding the deals in the right areas. Um, I, I'll be, where I made a lot of my mistakes at is I did not do a market analysis on properties uh, prior to getting involved with them. Uh, I'll give you an example. When people come to me and they're like, Drew, I'm, I'm having challenges with this you know, property, wholesaling it. Uh, so I begin to ask them, you know, obviously, what zip code is it in? And then I ask them, how many transactions took place in the last 90 days? They don't know. Hmm. How many of those are financed? How many of those are cashed? They don't know. Well, that's a problem. Um, I can tell you, usually, uh, when I get involved in a property, I've done my market analysis, and I can confidently say that here's the reason why I'm involved in this house, because 90% of all transactions in this particular area or this zip code are cash, and there were 72 of them in the last 90 days. So you don't have to just find a good deal. You have to find a good deal in the right location. And, uh, and, and right location meaning where there's a high concentration of buyers or particularly cash buyers. So if you go to a zip code where there are an abundance of transactions and the majority of them are cash and you get something under contract, if it's a deal, you can literally just put a bandit sign out there and it'll sell. It'll mm -hmm. sell. You could even just call the previous cash buyers yep. that bought homes in that neighborhood and tell them, hey, I got a deal. You interested? I call, I call the agents. Yeah. I, lever I leverage the MLS. I call the agents. I say, hey, I noticed on uh, you know your property over there on Emma Street that sold about 60 days ago, I noticed you sold it to a cash buyer. They're like, yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm curious. Is your buyer buying multiple properties or are they just buying the one? And uh, usually they're buying multiple. I said, well, hey, I got this deal down the street. Um, I don't own it yet. I have it under contract. 
But uh, I'm considering buying it and fixing it up. But if your buyer is interested, I'd consider it selling it to him for you know five thousand dollars above what I'm paying for it. And, and, you, uh, and you just tell the realtor to add whatever commission they want on top of that, right? You got it. So, and I always make sure it's more than three percent. I always make sure it's more than three percent because um, that motivates them. Um, so if 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 it's a fifty thousand dollar property, three percent would be fifty thousand dollars. I would pay them two or twenty five hundred. It's not that difficult, guys. <laughs> this is that's why I love doing this podcast because I hear stories like this, Drew, and uh, I get so excited about it because I know people listening to this for the first time and and wondering whether they should get their feet wet into real estate. Um, I love this because it's it's not that difficult. It's easy to do. It just takes some guts. It takes a, a willingness to step out and take bold, decisive action. Yep. And uh, it's it's not rocket science, guys. You, you also got to think, what's the worst case scenario here? If I don't buy the property and I make an attempt to, to sell it uh, and you have the right uh, clauses included, I mean, there's really no downside. I mean, the downside is you've wasted your time. But even then, you're not wasting your time because you're gaining an education. So, mm-hmm. yep. you know, there really is no downside. What? Yeah. Go ahead. I'd like to share one more thing with you, um, particularly to this topic. Um, people ask me when I go to a new area, how do I know what's a good deal? And uh, this is this is going to sound a little different. Um, I know when I I know what the values in a particular neighborhood are when I get a property under contract and I can't sell it. Yeah. And the reason for that is, uh, and I did this. I went to a new neighborhood one time. I, I knew nothing about the area and. Uh, I got some properties under contract and I felt like the price ranges I was in based upon my market analysis was good. Um, When I got them under contract, I couldn't sell them. I could not sell them quickly. And I'm known for, because of my techniques, I'm known for selling houses via text message or within a day, two days. I mean, if I'm not selling a house within a week, I'm freaking out. Um, usually unless it's retail, but you know, wholesale deals, if they're good, they'll go quickly. Um, but what happens is if I get a property under contract and if I, can't, if I don't get a lot of activity on it within the first five days or if I don't get it sold within the first five days, I'll either go back and renegotiate my price uh, based upon the work that's needed for, uh, uh-huh. that the house needs uh, or I'll completely back out. Right. And uh, a lot of people don't want to hear that because they think that that's a bad thing. It's not. It's my right it's mm-hmm. in my contract. I have the right to back out. Now, I'm not out there trying to waste people's time. One of the things I do is I do it with finesse. Uh, I back out as quickly as possible. If I if I get the feeling that I'm going to back out, I don't back out on the 10th day of my inspection period. I try to back out within the first three to five days. Yeah. Uh, so that way, I still have my I still get respect from the anybody involved on the deal. That's yeah, really you don't key. want to burn people up. <laughs> you really right. don't. Word I, I, goes I, fast. Yeah, and I, I've seen a people. I've, I've, I've witnessed a few people here locally that uh, uh, have not done that. They call me for advice, and I'm like, you know, as soon as you get a property under contract, you have to jump all over that thing. You know, bandit signs, Craigslist, make some phone calls, call some agents. You know, I mean, whatever it takes. Go to a RIA meeting. I mean, sell the thing. Um, and and but don't wait till the fifteenth day to realize that you don't have a deal because now you know you could potentially not only lose your escrow deposit but somebody might want to sue you. Yeah. 
Very good advice. That's always not a very good thing. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 as soon as I get a property that goes live, like I get it under contract and I know my inspection period is the clock is ticking, it goes on my calendar, it goes on my board, it goes in my phone. Uh, you know, I get notified. That way I know uh, exactly when my inspection period is up because if I'm going to back out, I'm going to do it respectfully with finesse. Um, <clears throat> or uh, hopefully, you know, but hopefully I get it, I get it sold. That's how that's I, an example of a finesse way of backing out of a deal. Call me as the agent, uh, you know, hey, I got this, you know, you just got this deal under contract from me as an agent. How are you going to back out? I just backed out on one a few, I just backed out on one a few days ago, so this should be pretty easy. Um, Alex, uh, I, I went uh, I went by the property yesterday with my business partner, and my business partner he actually has his contractor's license, so he knows a little bit more about how much things cost and 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 the repairs and, and things of that nature. So that's why I took them by the property there yesterday, and as we started to you know really analyze the property and and really create a very accurate budget for the property. Uh, we believe that the price we're in on this thing and the amount of work that is required for this particular property, I, I think it just doesn't fit what we're looking for. So uh, one of two things, either uh, we would like to go back in at a better price. Um, so let's say I'm in at 55, I'll go back at 50 and see if they bite. Uh, and if you're not willing to accept that, we uh, we would like to just walk away from the property. Um, and then once, you know, I, once they tell me that, um, I get different reactions. I get agents. If I'm dealing with agents, I get agents that are cooperative. They understand. They will advise me to send over estimates of the repair cost to justify my request for a price reduction or a better price. And uh, I just did that recently on a property that I bought, and I was into it at 55, and I wasn't comfortable with it. Uh, so I went back and I negotiated it for 50, um, and I got it with providing them some estimates and things of that nature. Uh, I have a property a few days ago that I backed out of. The agent was not so happy. Um, he did not want to cooperate with me requesting for a better price. Uh, so I immediately sent him a cancellation of contract. And you there had you contingency go. clauses to let you do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had. Uh, I, in fact, I had about a 10-day inspection period, and I backed out, I think, on day four. Yeah, what's wrong with that? That's Nothing. classy. Yeah, it's very yeah, good. I, I think so. I, he, you know, it's funny because he was actually not happy. He was not happy with me. Um, he, he was very difficult. The agent was, but agents could just be difficult sometimes. But I told him, I said, listen, you know, go talk to your broker. Go talk to whoever you want to talk to. But the fact of the matter is, is I have 10 days inspection period and I'm backing out. You know, I don't like it. So you can either work with me on a better deal on this property. You know, at the end of the day, he just wants a commission. He just wants to yeah. sell the house. And yeah. Yeah. And it's your right to do that if it's in the contract. So, and, and, yeah. and I can understand why he wasn't happy. I mean, I don't expect him to jump up and shout for joy that the contract's been canceled, but uh, that's understandable. But you the, did it with the, grace and finesse. That's congratulations, good for you. Well, the the other nice thing is that particular property was a short sale, so he now has a short sale approval letter in hand. Yeah. So. He was trying to justify me to be that it was such a good deal. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. Why won't you buy it? It's a good deal. I'm like, it's it's not a good deal, you know. Um, and granted, I should have had been in at a better price to begin with, but you know, you can't really spend a lot of time creating accurate budgets on every single property that I look at. You know, I'm doing it off the top of my head. Um, so when once I get it under contract and I look at it with a closer eye, sometimes you know, I'm, I'm not dead on it. It happens. Um, 
<clears throat> so, uh, yeah, you know, he, he, he wasn't too thrilled, but I, you know, absolutely. It's, it's my right. And I told him, I said, you know, if it's such a good deal, you're telling me to buy it. I mean, you should be happy. You have the approval letter now, go put it back on the MLS and sell it to somebody else. And if it's yeah. a good deal, it'll sell. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Not relying on the greater fool theory. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're, if it's such a good deal, why, you know, go sell it to somebody else. Hey Drew, we got to talk more about, uh, we got to end this pretty soon here, but we got to talk more about private money. Uh, yes. It's kind of your expertise. It's what you're known for. Yes. Um, talk a little bit about, well, we already talked about why private money is important. It helps you buy more properties, right? Um, yes. Why, uh, talk a little bit about maybe how you find your private lenders. I know a lot of people, that's a burning question they have, right? I am the kind of individual that when I make a decision to do something, that is the only thing on my mind. I live it, I breathe it, I eat it, I sleep it. And um, that's what happened one day is I realized that one of the most fundamental things that I was missing in my real estate business was money. So, and I also realized that all of my competitors, most of my competitors and my friends around me in the real estate business uh, was not looking for money. So I knew that by getting my hands on some private money, it would position myself to be the go-to guy to wholesale properties to myself or people would come to me for the money and uh, I just started looking for it. I started with the people that I knew. I started with the people in my phone book, uh, in my phone, in my, uh, in my contacts, my email box. I literally just started asking everywhere. Um, my banker, my local banker, um, it, it just became a daily thing. Uh, it was funny as uh, my significant other would ask me in the morning when I'd, you know, I'd get my cup of coffee and I'm on my way out the door. She's like, so what do you got to do today? That's the same thing I do every day. Ask for a million dollars. Right. It became routine that every day I was out there asking for money and um, – but I'll you, never. You, you have a great way of doing it, Drew. I mean, you don't go out and just say, hey, can I have some money? No. Uh, you, you talk about the deals and the success, the kinds of return you're giving investors. Talk a little bit about how you ask for that money. Well, for starters, I started actually borrowing or partnering with investors that I sold houses to. Um, I knew they had money because I'd sold houses to them and I know that they're looking for a return on their money. So the first couple of rehab projects that I got involved in, I knew it was a good deal. I had control of the deal and I actually called a couple of the cash buyers and say, Hey, I got an idea. You know, I know you like to make a return on your money. How about you make a return on your money and you don't have, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to be a landlord. You don't have to manage the project. You don't have to do anything. And that was actually one of my first joint ventures was with um, somebody that had money on a rehab project. And uh, I did not make a lot of money on my first couple of rehab projects, but I built a relationship with uh, some cash people, you know, some cash investors. I also uh, got the experience. Uh, I learned a lot from the rehabs. Um, and not only that, uh, you know, I, I think the most important thing is just building the relationship with that particular type of situation because it grows from there. Uh, I start talking to their friends, their family, their neighbors, or people that they know for money, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and, and so on and so forth. I, I will share one really cool thing that I did recently that uh, it, I think it, it went so well, I didn't even know how to handle it. And I, I haven't even fully taken advantage of what I have in my hands here. 
Um, I found a, I, I wanted to go to a self-directed IRA meeting. Uh, there's a lot of self-directed IRA money uh, out there. And what self-directed IRA money is, is money that you can invest in real estate through the vehicle of real estate um, and not necessarily invested in just stocks or mutual funds. A lot of people are upset uh, or frustrated with Wall Street and, and mutual funds and IRAs and things like that. Problem is, though, is is the real estate market is not uh, – <clears throat> it's not um, – it's not as easy as just logging onto your computer and determining how many shares of stock you want to buy. It's there's there's a huge learning curve to it. So there's a lot of people that have taken their money out of the stock market and it's just I mean millions if not actually billions of dollars that are just sitting in people's self-directed IRAs that are earning them probably 0 to 3% and they don't have the first clue on how to invest it in real estate. So I wanted to learn more about self-directed IRAs, and I began to look for an event here locally in Tampa, like some kind of a meeting or meetup or something, and nothing existed. Uh, I found a very professional uh, self-directed IRA guy, and I told him about it. I said, you know, this doesn't exist. I said, what do you think about us putting an event together? And uh, I don't do events. I'm not a speaker. I don't, I don't do anything like that. Um, I don't do boot camps or nothing like that. And uh, I rented out a hotel room. I advertised for it. I picked a crappy day. Uh, there was a huge parade going on here in Tampa that everybody knows about called Gasparilla. And I actually picked like the worst day to hold it. Uh, I, I only advertised it for like six days and I had about 40 people show up. What did you advertise? Uh, a self-directed IRA meeting? Uh, self-directed IRA and real estate investing in 2012, I believe is nice. what we called it. So he, the self-directed IRA guy spoke about uh, self-directed IRAs in detail and I spoke about, me and my partner, we spoke about uh, real estate and we gave examples of our deals and how we made mistakes and I actually kind of scared them a little bit. I scared the people in the room a little bit. I talked to them about short sales. I talked to them about the real estate auction. I talked to them about you know the rehabs that I did that went bad. Uh, I talked to them about you know just all the challenges and what I essentially was doing is I was, I was educating them but I was also trying to get them to, in their mind, uh, convince them that Listen, you want to do real estate, you have self-directed IRA money. If you want to go out there and do real estate, good luck. you got about a two to three years or a year uh, to learn. Because a lot of these people, you know, they're, they're doctors or attorneys or whatever. Uh, they're not really real estate investors. So um, that uh, – and, and real estate can be easy if you're doing it full-time, but these people can't do it full-time. So as opposed to – them doing it full-time, I'm convincing them to just partner with me with their capital and I'll do it full-time for them. Okay. And so it worked out. You That's weren't really soliciting good. funds. You were just giving an educational seminar on how – Right? Yeah. Say it again. Sorry. Well, you, yeah. You, you weren't soliciting funds necessarily. You were just giving an educational forum discussion on how self-directed IRAs work and how – Mm-hmm. They could use their money in real estate investing in a self-directed IRA yep. and make great returns on their money. That's it. That's all we did. And uh, even people's react, it was free. Um, we didn't charge anyone. It only cost us a couple hundred dollars to put it together. Obviously, I made people register for it, and I got their names, phone numbers, and email addresses. Um, and, uh, you know, I put them on my buyer's list as well because some of the people are hands-on in that room. So two things happened. One, I built my buyer's list. Two, I found access to money, um, depending on the individual that, 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 that's in the room. 
and, and I have both people that were in that room. I have real estate investors and I have people that just have self-directed IRA money that wants to invest their funds. So it, it worked out. And, and there were real estate agents in there too, which was really cool. So um, for a couple hundred bucks, yeah, there, there, were, there were some people that left the event and they, they were waiting to be pitched. They thought we were going to sell them something. And I, I simply explained to them, you know, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just trying to build a relationship with you. And, uh, you know, we just wanted to provide you with some education. And, man, they love us. I, I can call any one of those 40 people that attended, and uh, they'll answer their phone and they'll have a conversation with me. Excellent. How did you keep the <laughs> distinction between soliciting uh, funds and um, and uh, just informing uh, real estate education way style? <laughs> I, I just didn't I didn't sell them anything. Um, I did mention to them that we do partner up with people, but that was really it. I mentioned it to them a few times, and that was it. Um, and I also mentioned to some people that I also have some properties to sell if they're interested. But at that particular day, I said, today, I have nothing to sell you guys. I have absolutely nothing to sell you guys. Um, but obviously, at a later date and time, uh, you know, I contact them to either add them to my buyer's list for my real estate properties or I add them to a list of um, people that I can meet with and potentially partner up with on their capital. How did you advertise for that meeting, Drew? Um, it was quite interesting. I had my title company send it to their, their list of uh, clients. I had the self-directed IRA guy send it to his clients. And I emailed it to my buyer's list. Uh, I had some other people email it to some lists. Like, uh, like we literally did a terrible job of – like I don't even consider that a great way to advertise. Like we just, I just, I was, I was trying to see what would happen more than anything, and it actually worked out well. Um, next time I advertised, I would go through public record and I would do a mailer for a few weeks to all cash buyers in Hillsborough County or in whatever county I'm trying to throw the event on, yeah. and get them to register that way because in that way I know I'm I'm targeting the right people. I'm targeting you know, people with money that are actively buying real estate. And if I get them to show up, uh, and that's, that's actually what we're going to do next time. So, um, the way we marketed it this time to how we're going to market it next time is probably going to be different, but it was still a success. So I can't complain. Excellent. I think that's a brilliant idea. And, you know, just the, the two things you just shared there with, um, finding deals by going after the uh, short sales on the MLS and the strategy of finding the private money with doing an educational class on IRAs um, and teaching people about investing in real estate. Uh, well worth the cost of admission, wouldn't you say, Alex? <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. I mean, the, the, the incredible value that um, we're just getting from this interview with Drew is amazing. But um, Drew, I, we have a question we always ask everybody. If you were dropped into a new city, a new market, you didn't know anybody there, um, and you needed to make some money. What would you start doing immediately uh, in that new market to start? Well, uh, the first thing I would do is I would try to find a real estate agent that has access to the MLS, um, and uh, that you know that could obviously be a little bit of a difficult task, but not really. I mean, I, I actually did this. I was in another city, and I had a property that uh, I'd came across, and I literally just drove by an office, and it was like this. Century 21 or Remax or something like that. I don't even remember. And I walked in. I went to the front desk and I said, <laughs> "Wow!" <laughs> I walked into the front desk and I said, "Listen, I said uh, I know this is going to sound a little awkward, but I'm looking for a very particular kind of agent." I said, "I'm looking for an agent that is used to working with investors, and I'm looking for an agent that uh, 
is probably the first one here in the morning and the last one to leave. <laughs> you have any, do you have that person in mind? And uh, usually they do. They're like, yeah, let me go get them for you. And, of course, the person's there because uh, that lets me know he's a hard worker. He or she is a hard worker. And um, so, so once I did that, then I sit down and I talk to the agent. I let them know what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm trying to do some real estate here. Um, but the first things first, I need some market analysis. Um, and I, you know, I, I need to, uh, I need, I need to know the area, uh, based upon what's selling in what zip codes. Typically I do it by zip code. I need to do my market analysis. You know, what's selling in this zip code. I take all the zip codes in that city and I'm going to have the agent run sold comps in the last 90 days, cash and finance. And we're going to sit down and we're going to analyze it. And I'm going to take the top five zip codes that have the highest, concentration of cash buyers, the most cash transactions in the last 90 days. And that's where I start. I memorize those top five zip codes. Um, I look at a map. I geographically learn where they're at. Uh, I start learning the style of properties. You know, are they ranch style? Are they two stories? Are they bungalows? You know, what, what's popular? Um, and, and that's kind of where I start. Um, usually, usually if you get, if you get that and you nail that right, the rest is probably going to follow suit. It's just going to it's just going to work out. Um, that's where I see a lot of people make a mistake because they just go out there and they you know they don't do that part. Um, and then I tr- you know I get properties under contract and then I'm going to sell them to the cash buyers that have already bought in that neighborhood. And it's easy. I'm going to target some short sales and some REOs. Um, short sales are going to take a while, but I don't mind uh, because I know that nobody's going after them. And so the buyers that are in a particular zip code are not looking at the short sales that are in that particular zip code at all. So, yeah. But they're buying in that zip code. So all I do is I get that property under contract, and then when it's ready to close, I turn around and I sell it to the you know, cash buyer in that area. Um, but you got to be careful. you got to be really careful with short sales because there's a lot of restrictions on the short sale approval letter. So um, you know, you just you, you got to be careful with that. And that's something that we do a great job of. We abide by the short sale approval letters. Um, you know, there's, sometimes there's sometimes there's some restrictions in there, and sometimes there's not. So just just be careful when you're dealing with short sales. It's uh, they're not all the same. Is all I'm right. saying. Right. Um, well, very very good, Drew. The um, I think the information you've shared. This has been one of our best podcast interviews ever. This awesome. Really Thank good. Really good. Awesome. awesome. Where do people go to get more information about you and what you do, Drew? Uh, you can check us out on our blog if you want to check out our blog, myflipfactory.com. Uh, That's myflipfactory.com, real estate for the modern world. Uh, we're a resource center providing uh, others how to deal with this very unique time and, and modern time of, of real estate. So myflipfactory.com, that's our blog. You can check out some of our cool videos. Um, just we got all kind of good stuff out there, so check it out. Good, myflipfactory.com. Uh, Everybody, too, will be doing an interview with Drew, uh, a webinar real soon with Drew. He has a great product on finding private money, one of the best out there. Um, and uh, I'm not kidding about that. Um, we'll be talking to him more in more detail about that coming up soon, so keep an eye out in your email inbox for that. Um, Drew, thank you so much. We sure appreciate it. Alex had to take off, um, but this has been a very, very good interview. And... Um, I'm looking forward to sending this out there to the real estate investing mastery world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, I love doing calls like these because, 
you know, people people need to hear the information. Uh, yeah. You know, everyone needs to hear. It. And and um, you know, I, I learn stuff from 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 the call as well. Uh, you know, hearing hearing you guys talk about things. So um, I appreciate it. Thank you. So everybody, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to see the show notes from this call to get the links to Drew's website and stuff. Um, and also, don't forget, please leave us a review in iTunes. We really appreciate all of the reviews you guys leave. And check out our Fast Cash Survival Kit. Again, I'm just going to harp on that every show we do because it's such valuable content. Um, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. Look us up in iTunes. Uh, we will see you guys later. Thanks again, Drew. Thank you.